Come along with us as we explore the broad world of preservation and the work being done to preserve, interpret, and save our past in a 21st century world. From aquaculture to historic foodways to forensic modeling, we're talking weekly with experts from across the globe. This is your host, Nick Redding. Welcome to PreserveCast. Join us on this week's PreserveCast as we talk with Dr. Maureen Elgersman-Lee about her work at the Bray School Lab at William & Mary. Dr. Lee will share some background about the Williamsburg Bray School that was hidden in plain sight for nearly 200 years on the William & Mary campus in Virginia. And she'll share some of its history as the oldest extant building dedicated to the education of black children in the United States. All that and more on this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. And today we're excited to be talking with Dr. Maureen Elgersman-Lee. And we're going to be talking about the work and the really groundbreaking work that she and others are doing at uh, William & Mary at the Bray School Lab. And we're going to learn all about what that means and, and um, the fascinating project that has come together that uh, she is overseeing. But before we get there, we love to get to know folks that we're talking with. So Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up, and how does someone get into the field of uh, the study of African American history and heritage? Well, I grew up in Canada. I'm proud to say that I am a native of Canada. I was born in Toronto. I grew up uh, outside Toronto in the Hamilton area, and I have, for years and years, had a real thirst for information when it comes to uh, African-American heritage, history, culture. I just remember even as a young girl reading the autobiography of Phyllis Wheatley um, as a very young child. So just, you know, light reading there um, and just really being pulled into the, the culture, the expression. So that was really something that really germinated even at the high school level. And then when I went to undergraduate, um, I was a French major, in fact, as a French major, a psychology minor. My original plan was to work for the federal government because in Canada, we have two official languages. So having a strong capacity in French, I thought was going to open a lot of doors, perhaps travel the world as an interpreter, um, but really travel on language, if you would. And I made a shift, um, a pivot, you might even say, um, going from being a French major to studying African-American history uh, at the graduate level. Actually, I really was my work-study position as an undergrad in the registrar's office, registrar slash admissions office, when schools used to send out their catalogs to other institutions and I was going leafing through these different university catalogs and I came across one and it really cap- really spoke to me. It captured my interest and passion and I made a complete shift. I went, uh, left Canada and went to Clark Atlanta University in Atlanta, part of the Atlanta University Center, the historic center of um, black colleges and universities and got my master's and my doctorate there, both in with a focus on African-American studies. So it just goes to show you never know what your path is going to be. You think you're starting somewhere and you may end up somewhere entirely different. And um, the French has continued to serve me 
and um, has enriched the research I've been able to do over time as well. It's fascinating. You know, we've done, uh, you're probably like the 275th or some episode in there. We're, we're closing in on 300. And I would say if there were like takeaways from all of these, it's that people rarely know initially what they want to do. So I, I think for young people listening, it's okay if you don't know exactly what you want to do, that there's all these like examples of people kind of pivoting or second careers or kind of reinventing themselves and finding something new and then really falling into something that they love. And it's clear, I mean, I will say for people listening, I got to meet you um, at an event in Williamsburg. We, we were uh, partnered with each other at a, at, a, at a table and the passion that you have for what you do, it, like it comes through. And, and that I think carries people, um, you know, through their careers is, is just really loving the work that they do. And that, that kind of comes across. So you go, you, you, you leave, uh, the, the true North proud and free <laughs> and you, um, are in Georgia, you get your master's and your doctorate. And then what's the first job in the field? What do you start, um, doing and where does your research take you? Sure. My first, uh, I would say my first paid position in the field was my position at the University of Southern Maine. I um, moved directly from graduate school to Maine, and I held the position of faculty scholar for the African-American collection, um, had a faculty position in the history department, and was the first to hold that position. But even prior to that, my first unpaid position in the field was actually as a volunteer at the Apex Museum, and Apex stands for African American Panoramic Experience. So that was that's a museum on Auburn Avenue, historic uh, Sweet Auburn, um, in a, in Atlanta. So again, a lot of our paid positions and the path to those paid positions can be paved by unpaid um, positions. So I volunteered on Saturdays. I get up and go to the Apex Museum, and I helped. Um, clean, um, cleaning um, fixtures, um, cleaning uh, exhibition cases, serving as a docent, and very quickly was able to sit in on planning meetings for future exhibitions, learning how to install exhibitions. So it really was an experience, again, as a volunteer, that absolutely made possible my first paid position coming out of graduate school. Um, I employed those skills in exhibition planning, um, a lot of very hands-on work installing exhibits, conceptualizing, really um, trying to create a good experience for individuals. My primary position there at the University of Southern Maine um, was divided between being a full-time faculty member in the history department, but I had release time to serve as the faculty scholar. So I was creating exhibitions. I was doing original research and publication and just had an incredible um, time and really count that as some of the most uh, important work that I've done uh, in looking at the history and legacies of African and African descended people. So speaking of important work, you're now at the College of William and Mary, um, a pretty historic institution in its own right. And you're working on a really cool project that I think a lot of people should know more about. Um, if anyone's heard about it, they probably have heard about 
the move. So right. that, that was pretty um, out there, which is they picked up a building and moved it. Everyone loves seeing a building move. It's just, it, it get, captures everyone's imagination. But let's take a step back before we talk about exactly what you're doing there. Let's talk about the Bray School. So what is this Bray School? Um, what is the history of it? And then we'll talk a little bit about, I mean, I'm sure it'll bleed in why it matters. But what, what are we talking about here? And then we'll talk about the work that you guys are, are doing to try and document and explore it. But, but for people who aren't familiar with it at all, paint the picture of the community and what this school was. Sure. So the we focus on the Williamsburg Bray School. And I point that out because, of course, we are in Williamsburg. The lab is part of William and Mary. Um, but the Williamsburg Bray School was one of a few Bray schools that existed in the colonial U.S. So it's not a singular school in the sense that there was only one Bray School. But of course, Williamsburg is our focus. So the Bray Schools, as they've been come to know, the Bray Schools were founded by the Bray Associates or the Associates of the late Dr. Bray. So Thomas Bray was an Englishman. He was um, very much responsible for helping found the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel um, in foreign parts. It's, It's an Anglican um based philanthropic organization that was established in England. Um, and its purpose was to, particularly under the Bray Associates, was to educate Black and Indigenous children in the Anglican faith, provide them a very, we might call a curated education that was very much structured to focus on the various tenets of the Anglican faith. We see that through the books that were used, particularly the Book of Common Prayer, being one of the common uh, textbooks that the Bray Associates used. So it was converting people who, quite honestly, were seen as heathens to the Anglican faith, make them Christians, give them a very curated education that does not push up against, in the case of, of the Black children that we're looking at, um, does not push up against their condition within slavery, their position as chattel, um, but provides them an education that the associates and the local trustees believed would be positive, would have a positive impact on their lives and also on the lives of those around them. So it's a very specific history. It's a very specific type of institution. Williamsburg, again, was one of a handful of Bray schools. The Philadelphia Bray School was established uh, just prior to the Williamsburg School. So the Williamsburg School was established in 1760. It opened in September of 1760, and it closed in August of 1774. And we believe we're looking at 14 years of continuous operation of the school. So there was the Philadelphia School. New York City had a school. Newport, Rhode Island also had a school. Williamsburg, and then also Fredericksburg, Virginia, had a school. So these were all locales that were successful in the sense that they were able to appeal to local individuals connected to Anglican uh, churches there in particular, and be successful in establishing a school. I make this point because the Bray Associates did try to establish schools in other places, um, we know certainly they tried to establish schools in other places in Virginia, 
that they were not able to uh, to be successful. So the schools that we see are a fraction of the schools that might have been established if all the places in all the communities and the churches to which the Bray Associates reached out had been receptive to establishing schools. Um, so, we're, so we're seeing uh, a fraction of what might have been in that sense. I feel like for people listening, a lot of people are thinking, okay, wait a second. I thought that it was illegal to teach African-Americans how to read and write and, and that was their, their understanding. And this seems to turn that on its head. It absolutely does. So what is the explanation for that? How was this legal or does this predate that? Explain that to people who might be curious about that piece. Sure. And you're really right on that point. We have to remember that we're talking about the colonial period. We're not talking about the early republic. We're not talking about the national period. Um, And we're certainly not talking about, you know, pre-Civil War period. We are firmly entrenched in the colonial period. We are about to go into the revolutionary period and make that shift from, in the case of Virginia, Virginia colony, right, the colony of Virginia, to the the Commonwealth of Virginia, part of the the new republic that is born out of the American Revolution. So just like where race relations are much more fluid in the colonial period, I would argue certainly uh, rules around the education of Black children Uh, is much more fluid. In fact, there is evidence in the correspondence relating to the Gray Associates that um, there are other people of African descent in Virginia who are already literate in the English language um, prior to the founding of the Williamsburg Gray School because we know that where those attempts to establish schools were not successful, the local community is writing back to the Bray Associates saying, uh, we are not going to support establishing a, a formal school. However, the books that you have sent us, which many of which are the same books that were used at the actual Williamsburg Bray School, we have, we have distributed, we've given to others, including, using the term of the, the correspondence, Negroes, um, who can read them and can share them with others. So there is literacy in the English language. There are African-descended people who are literate in English who are able to read and make use of these resources outside of the Bray School. And then we have the actual Bray School itself. Uh, so it does it does make people scratch their heads. And we have that question. That's probably the, outside of understanding the lives of the children, that's probably the question that we get most. How do we understand that? How were they able to do this? This school was the most Southern of the Bray schools. We know that. Um, It was not a secret. It was not um, hidden. And if we look at who was sending children to the Bray school over the 14-year period, based on those surviving documents, we know that these were some of the most powerful, wealthy, and influential people, not only in Williamsburg, but in the Virginia colony. But we also see tradespersons who sent children to the Bray School, merchants, doctors, um, those connected to both Bruton Parish and also William and Mary. So it's a really multi-layered uh, history and narrative that we're, that we're working on building. So this might be sort of a segue to talking about your work, but 
I mean, you could ask this about a lot of aspects of African-American history, but how was all of this lost, right? I mean, we seems like a pretty seminal moment, seems like a pretty fascinating piece of early African-American history and race relations in the pre-revolutionary era. And now it, it sort of seems novel in that very few people know about this. This is very exciting. Williamsburg has been around for, you know, close to 100 years as Colonial Williamsburg. And it we're just now learning about this, just now moving this building over. How did this get lost to history? And what has been the path to rediscovery? That's that's an interesting question. Um, in some ways, it's not been lost. There's this really interesting kind of binary um, in the sense that we talk about the building, the Bray School building, also known as Bray Diggs House. So there's the building itself and the surviving building that was moved in February was the building that housed the school for its first five years. For the remainder of its time, we understand it to have occupied another building, which was not far from the original location of the building and not far from the building's now permanent location as part of the historic area at uh, Colonial Williamsburg. So we have to separate the building from the history of the school itself, the school as an educational enterprise, because it operated within one building, it operated within another building, one of which remains, one which is lost. But the, the, the school itself is kind of, is many ways bigger than the building, right? So there's a, there's a number of, of ways in, to answer this and aspects of this answer. So I want to make sure I'm, I'm covering that turf. So it, it was not lost in the sense that if you look at Colonial Williamsburg's um, website, for example, there are building reports um, that pertain to various historic structures. So there has been documentation about the Bray School that's been around for decades. Uh, I also add the work of John Van Horn, he has published the iconic work on the Bray schools in, in Williamsburg, again, Philadelphia, the other cities that I, I just recently mentioned. He has taken the, trans, the, the correspondence and transcribed it and published that work. So that was done in the, in the 80s. So there's, there's a body of work that has been sitting here for decades, addressing and speaking and witnessing to the existence of the Bray School as a, as a building, as a uh, educational enterprise. The building itself, which is, again, this physical, right, remnant, right, of history that we get excited about when we can see the remnants of history, when, when we can touch them, when, when we can, um, you know, in the future stand inside and, and, and imagine what it was like to be a student in this space. Those things capture our imagination. It's easier to put the school operation and the building together um, in that sense. But I have to kind of tell a two-part story about the, the rediscovery or confirmation of the physical building. Um, the first part of the story pertains to Professor Emeritus of English at Will Mary, Terry Myers. Terry Myers came across a reference to the Bray School really decades ago in his research on uh, English literature, Victorian area literature. And that really put him on a path and he took others along on that journey as well to really 
kind of understand where the Bray School might be. So if that building survives in Williamsburg, where might that be? So for decades, Terry Myers was scanning the landscape of downtown Williamsburg, as we call it, um, looking at buildings and trying to imagine which building might be the Brace School. And he came upon a building that stood at 524 Prince George Street. And he kept coming back to that building. And that building had been moved from its original site at the corner of Boundary and Prince George, where Brown Hall currently stands on the campus of William Mary. So the building had been modified. It had been moved. It had been modified further. So it looked very different from this original 18th century structure. But he kept coming back. And he says that he kept looking at the chimneys. And he's, and that was the answer. He kind of could, in his mind's eye, see taking off the additions and getting back to a much more simple 18th century structure. He said, if the Bray School survived, it's this building. Subsequent testing of the building, um, sampling, particularly paint samples and, and other kind of architectural assessment, kept dating the building to after the era of the Bray School and into the 1800s. So for a while, the, you know, the question was asked and answered. This really can't be the Bray School. It just doesn't line up. The evidence doesn't line up. But then during the pandemic, I think we had a lot of time to think about things <laughs> more during the pandemic. And the leadership of Colonial Winsburg, so President Cliff Fleet, the president of One Mary, uh, President Catherine Rowe, agreed to allow more invasive testing. It was really, at that time, the building was still owned by One Mary. So the president gave the go-ahead to allow Colonial Winsburg to lead a process of more invasive testing of the building because they they advised that they would have to do some some damage to the building. They would have to peel off some exterior portions of the building, interior portions to get deeper into the building, go beyond the 20th century um, renovations, adjustments, expansion to the building to get to what might be, in fact, that colonial building. So dendrochronology testing was done. So deep core uh, wood samples were done and the wood was dated to the fall of 1759 and the spring of 1760. So therein was that smoking gun, if you would, that everyone, um, and particularly Terry Myers, um, had been waiting for many years for. And so that was the, that was the answer that this building, in fact, is the Bray School. So in early 2021, late February, early March uh, 2021, you would have seen across national, international media, the announcement that the Bray School had, in fact, been found. Um, the Washington Post, the New York Times, um, NPR, other um, media outlets covered this. And the Williamsburg Bray School Initiative was also announced as this partnership, ongoing partnership between William Mary and the Colonial Winsburg Foundation to study, preserve, and share broadly the history and legacies of the Williamsburg Bray School. So, so that Bray might School be found. Yeah, that's a good place to take a pause. 
um, and then come back and talk about what the work is being done at William & Mary, where this is headed, and how people can engage with it and learn more. Um, and we'll do that right here when we come back on PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work. And there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP's an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Again, we're talking to Dr. Maureen Elgersman-Lee, and we're talking all about the work uh, that she and her team is doing at the Bray School Lab at William & Mary. Before we took our break, we got to learn about her background. We got to learn about the history of the Bray School and then how it was found and really this fascinating work that was propelled a silver lining of the pandemic. So talk to us about the work of the lab itself. What are what are the folks at the lab focused on? What is the goal here? And um, what are you working towards? Right. So under the under the Williamsburg Bray School Initiative, the Woman Mary Bray School Lab is focusing on studying, preserving, and disseminating broadly the history and legacies of the Williamsburg Bray School. So we are really focused on the school as that educational enterprise that operated within the uh, structure that is being uh, restored currently by the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. So we're looking very much at all documents pertaining to the history of the of the Winsburg Bray School. Most particularly, we're focusing on the uh, correspondence between the Bray Associates in London and local trustees here in Williamsburg. That being said, we recognize that the, that that correspondence is privileging the voices of certain individuals in this history while also keeping silent very much the voices of others, particularly the children. So we are working with the documents that we have. And those documents are telling us things like what were the what was the routine of the school? Uh, what was taught at the school? What do we know about kind of the rhythm of the school? We know that the, that the students were taught by one woman. Her name was Ann Wager. Uh, During the entirety of the school's operation, the school had one teacher. And I mentioned that the school closed in August of 1774. That's because Ann Wager died in that month and the school closed. There's um, the question, right, what happens after Ann Wager dies? And we know that the school closed permanently in 1777 because the Bray Associates documents tell us that the associates were um, shifting their focus away from the colonial U.S. The American Revolution is taking place right now. They're not exactly on great terms with the Virginia colonies and the other colonies that were in, you know, in rebellion um, from their perspective. Um, and they're they're focusing their their energies elsewhere. We know that 
the outcome of the revolution brings American independence. So uh, for the Williamsburg Brave School, that is where the story ends. So that's a, that's a trajectory that we're working within. We're looking at the correspondence. Robert Carter Nicholas was the local trustee of the Williamsburg Brave School through whose correspondence we know most about the history of the school. So really mining those documents while we continue to look for more documents. And students play a key role. We are, we are a higher educational institution, so students are central to the, to the mission, right, to the educational mission of the institution. So student thought partners is what we call our, our students who work in the lab and align with us in doing the studying, preserving, and sharing broadly the history of the Gray School. So our student thought partners are drawn from across the university in terms of various disciplines, um, various classifications, freshmen, undergraduate, seniors, graduate students, all students who are interested in the Bray School are welcome to be thought partners with us. And we have various projects that um, lend themselves to different disciplines. But we are at the heart of the work. We are interdisciplinary. We are a highly interdisciplinary lab looking at this history. So all of this research is being done, which is fantastic and engaging students and that sort of thing. I'm curious where, what will people expect and when can they visit the Brace School? I'm sure a lot of people are listening or thinking, well, I want to come see this. I want to get in there. What's the interpretation going to be like? Are you part of that conversation? I think that's probably a good place to kind of begin to, to wrap up our conversation here. Like where, where is this all headed in terms of an actual physical place to visit? Sure. So in the lab, we are, again, looking at the lives of the students, understanding um, who they are. We have three student lists that survive that give us the name of some 86 students that attended the Bray School. We believe that that the total number of students is much higher. So our role is to provide that information around, particularly around genealogy, um, to provide a number of complete and vetted um, genealogical lines from students who attended the Bray School to the present or as close to the present as we can go while still protecting the privacy of descendant community members. So we engage with um, descendant community members on various levels. We actually um, just recently completed a very successful Descendant Outreach Week, which is our annual focus week um, of events focused on um, engaging and supporting descendant community members. So that's really um, the the major role that we play in terms of interpretation, providing information, the the restoration and the decisions around what people will see when the building opens to the public next September. So I can say late next September um, is the point at which the building's restoration will be complete and the building will open to the public. But Colonial Williamsburg Foundation is driving that. We are partners in that um, and we are in conversations around that. But I just want to be clear about that, that the lab is not driving the restoration of the building. That is not our expertise. Colonial Williamsburg Foundation has more than 40 historic trades to uh, employ and world-class um, expertise in that. But we have 2024 as for the Bray School Lab, the 2024, which will be the 250th anniversary of the closing of the school. We're looking at 2024 as the year of the Bray School. That is that is how we are going into that year. Uh, we know what's happening with the building. Um, 
being open to the public later on in the year, but it's a year-long opportunity to shine a light on the history of the Bray School, share what we know about the students, and, and continue to engage um, descendant community members as well. So some of our kind of touch points include, again, Descendant Outreach Week in April. We have our Slate Seminar, which is our annual um, series of um, panels and talks around the Bray School. We call it the Slate Seminar because around the footprint of the original Bray School was found the highest concentration of slate pencil fragments um, anywhere in Williamsburg. Wow. So there, there's still work on dating that to the Bray School. Does that mean 100% that they were products of the Bray School? That is to be determined because the Bray School operated for five years in that place. So it's a very small period of time. Um, but what was what were slate pencil fragments used for, right? They were used for uh, teaching. They were used for education. So in honor of that, and in really kind of honoring that history, we have what we call the Slate Seminar. We will have uh, activities certainly um, in February in honor of, honor of uh, Black History Month. And we also are looking forward to the end of 2024, when in fact we will have a book launch. One of our major projects within the lab is leading the publication of a book on the Williamsburg Brace School. So we're very excited about that. And we are excited to be able to um, look forward to the latter part of next year when that book will be finished and we'll be able to um, make it available to the public. So there's a lot to look forward to, a lot for people to follow up on, probably a reason to have you back and come back and, and talk about the book and everything like that. Um, if people want to learn more about Brace School where can they find that information? Where's the best place to send them? Sure. So if people want to learn more, and we, we hope that you will, because we have um, a website with an extended research portal uh, into which we are pouring more and more content. We've got a great body of content already. Um, people can find the list of students, the households that they came from, the occupations of those households, blogs written by students, staff, and descendant community members, um, other media information, transcriptions of letters, voice recordings of those letters, all live on our website through which you can click to the research portal. Um, so people can go to the Woman Mary website, which is just wm.edu, very simple. And if they go to the search bar, just put Bray, Bray School Lab, um, it'll it'll bring you to the link that will take you to those resources. And we've got multiple pages that will acquaint you with our staff, our projects, what our descendant outreach um, activities are, and also how to reach out to us if you feel that you may well be a descendant of the Bray School students. We know that a lot of individuals have roots that go back to the Woonsburg area, and those roots run deep. And there is a very large descendant community mem um, descendant community that exists, again, very locally in Woonsburg, but increasingly we are finding more and more descendants who are pushed, whose families have migrated over time, and they are found in various parts of the country and even increasingly internationally. Well, I think that that is a, a great place um, for us to, to kind of move to a conclusion here. And um, we will put a link in the show notes for people to find all of that. We do ask everyone before they leave, um, if you have a favorite historic place or site, it doesn't have to be the Bray School. We'll give you a, a break on that. But um, what's a favorite place of yours? 
Oh, wow. That's probably the most difficult question of all the questions today. Um, I think for its history, I, I my heart goes back to goes to Barbados. Um, Bridgetown, but I would say just the entire island of Barbados is not very big. Um, and there's so much history there, certainly legacies of enslavement. But for me, it is an incredible place of uh, culture and resilience and just absolute beauty. Um, I'm ready to go just about any time. Give me an hour or so. I can have a peg. I can have my bag packed and my passport in hand, and I'm ready to go. I love it. I'm I'm ready too. Well, let's let's go and do a podcast down there. I, I'm all I'm all in. <laughs> well, it has been a pleasure to have you here today. So exciting to hear about this project, and looking forward to seeing the book and the building open and um, the research that you've been doing um, come together to create some great interpretation. So thanks so much for joining us. So it's such a pleasure talking with you. Great. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.